Hey, good morning, church. My name's Stuart. Glad to be with you. If you have your Bible, open to the book of Colossians, chapter 1. Colossians, chapter 1. We are working through uh, the book of Colossians, and as Kelsey said in that video, this is week two of that series. Um, while you're turning there, I, uh, by way of introduction for this morning's uh, message, I, I've been thinking a lot about kind of childhood games. I picked up a bunch of uh, board games for my uh, kids yesterday. Uh, one of the things I forgot, it's been 12 years since I lived in Florida, uh, but one of the things I forgot is that it rains every day in Florida in the summer. Um, and that was not on the brochure, on uh, the job posting for coming here. Um, but I've been reminded that's the case. And so I stocked up on, on board games um, and I passed over the box of dominoes at the store, but I was, I was thinking about when I was a kid playing with dominoes. Anybody play with dominoes as a kid? Uh, some people play the actual game where, you know, you match the numbers and, you know, that's the thing. Uh, when I was a kid, I played with dominoes by stacking them up in cool patterns and pushing them over, over and over and over again. And it's super fun to see kind of what kind of creations you might be able to make when you do that. Uh, and that, thinking about that got me thinking about um, kind of during the pandemic. I don't know if you saw all these videos, if you were on YouTube way too much like I was during the pandemic, but all these videos of these people building these kind of chain reaction uh, type of machines, right, where they would like just push a ball or something and it would start this chain reaction. It would go down a slide and then it would drop into a, 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 you know, a lever that would tilt it and it would drop it here and it would trigger this thing. And you know what I'm talking about? And they would go on and on and on. And these elaborate creations these guys would make because they had nothing to do uh, as they're stuck home uh, during the pandemic and they would record them. And it was just mesmerizing to see kind of these chain reactions that could be triggered. Uh, I've been thinking about this because the text that we're in today is a bit like that, kind of like a, a stack of dominoes that, that is, creates a chain reaction. When you push one thing over, everything else begins to go uh, into motion. And so that's vague. I, I know I get it. Um, but hopefully that'll come uh, into focus as we work through our text this morning. So I'm going to read uh, verses 9 through 14 of Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to pray for us and then we will dive in. So read with me. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 9, says this. The Apostle Paul writes, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share and the inheritance of the saints in light. Verse 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we trust it, we believe it, we rely on it. And as we study it this morning, I pray that you would encourage us with it. I pray that you would convict us with it. I pray that you would draw us to yourself with it. Uh, but above all, that you would be glorified uh, as we dive into it this morning. So would you speak to each and every one of us here, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This text, uh, verses 9 through uh, 14, even though in, in your English Bible it's, it's a couple of sentences or several sentences here, in the original language it's actually one long run-on sentence. And if you've read much of the letters in the New Testament, you know the Apostle Paul's kind of famous for this, right? He writes these long run-on sentences that just go and go and go and go, and they can sometimes be tough to make sense of where he's going. And that's what he's done here. He's lists off all of these things that he is praying for this church at Colossae. 
And he, he, he lists a bunch of them. We're going to cover all of it this morning, but you can kind of put his prayer into three buckets that are going to form kind of our three points for this morning. So if you're a note taker, here's, here's where we're going. He first offers a prayer for knowledge, a prayer for knowledge. Then he offers a prayer for strength. And then third, a prayer of thanksgiving. So a prayer for knowledge, prayer for strength, and a prayer of thanksgiving. And so let's dive into these things and kind of work through them in order. First, Paul's prayer for knowledge. I'll read it again, verse 9. And so from the day we heard, Paul says, we have not ceased to pray for you. Here's what the prayer is. He says, I'm asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. And so the first part of his prayer is that this church, and we can, all of this stuff we can extend to ourselves as a church, right? That our church, that this church, Paul says, might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And so that begs the question, what does Paul mean by knowledge of his will? What is he talking about here? What he doesn't mean is kind of our own personal, individual plans, that God's personal will for your life and for my life, like, should I take this job? Should I do this, that? Should I have Mexican or Italian for lunch? Like, he's not talking about your individual personal will. Paul's really speaking here of kind of his, God's global will, God's ultimate and eternal plans and purposes in the world, God's grand agenda for the world that he's created. Paul wants the people of the church at Colossae to know who God is and what he's up to. And he says this knowledge of who God is and what he's up to, it's a spiritual knowledge. It's, it's something that's uh, then accompanied by wisdom and understanding, right? And we, we know there's kind of a difference between knowledge and wisdom, isn't there? Right? You can know something, but to really understand it and be able to use it and to apply it, that's real wisdom. Like for me, for example, I know uh, what certain tools are and how to use them and kind of what their purposes are. But uh, some of you guys that are a little more seasoned, a little more handy than I am, Greg, if he's, is Greg in here? Where is he at? Oh, next hour. All right, we'll see you in week two, or hour two. Greg knows what to do with those tools and how to use them and how to bring kind of those skills and understanding to bear on a situation. Paul says, hey, I want that for you. I want you to know not just what God's up to, but how it ought to affect you, how it ought to change you, how you ought to live as a result of it. Paul wants this church to know God, to know what God is up to, and that know-how, that wisdom should impact how they live. How, what does he mean by that? He says it should make them walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. They should walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Paul's saying this understanding, this knowledge, this wisdom, it should lead to a life of godliness, a life of holiness. And there's a connection, he's saying, between how well we know God and how well we live our lives for God. Those things are related. The more that we know God, the more holy we will be in our personal conduct. Why? Because when we know what God wants for our lives, we know best how to please him. I like this quote from author Mark Maynell. I should have put it up on the screen, but I didn't. I apologize. This is what it says. He says this about God's will and God's plans and God's character. He says, so we could say that to know God's will is effectively to know God's character. The two always go together in the Bible, as the Ten Commandments illustrate. For example, the command to not commit adultery reflects God's own faithfulness to his promises. The command to not envy others reflects God's commitment to generous provision. But even the first four commandments, which relate to our relationship to our Creator, they even illustrate God's nature. After all, if he is the only true God, it is entirely consistent to say that we should never worship other gods. 
What this author is saying, what Paul is saying here, is that there is a connection. God's commands are connected to his character. God's commands are connected to his character. They're not divorced from one another. God's orders, God's desire for our lives, God's plan for our lives, how we ought to live, what he's ordered, it is rooted in who he is. Many people struggle with the Christian life because they'll say things like, oh, there are too many rules, right? Or one that's popular right now is, is why does God care what, what I do in, in, in the bedroom? Or, or maybe you'll hear someone say, uh, they'll say something like, if God loves me so much, why won't he just let me do the things that I want to do? All of that comes from an overemphasis on God's commands and an underemphasis on God's character. They come from being aware of his commands, but not of his character. And they're what happens when you hear what God says without knowing who God is. But when you encounter the living God, church, when you meet him, when you know him, when you find out what he cares about, how much he loves you, what he's done for you on the cross, how he's sustaining you even now, as we'll learn later in the book of Colossians, how he wants the very best for your life and how he plans to spend eternity in heaven with you, those commands start to look a little different, don't they? All of a sudden it becomes a little bit easier to obey because we know these commands aren't just arbitrary and abstract. They're designed out of God's love for you and for me to live the life that he's called us to live. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're not a believer, I want to tell you that the commands of God are important. We're, we're committed to them. We're serious about them and we don't take them lightly. But they flow from God's character. So I want to encourage you, non-believer, to get to know the God of the Bible and then come back to his commands and see if they're not worth following. Because I'm convinced, like many of us in this room, that once you get to know the Lord, you will want to please the Lord. Right? For Christians, you and I in the room, if you're a believer here, I want us to make sure, as a church, that we're proclaiming not just the commands of God, but we're proclaiming the character of God to the world as well. Our goal isn't to convince the world around us to follow God's laws. Our goal is to convince the world around us of the greatness of God's love for us. The commands, they follow from that. The obedience flows from that. But it's useless to convince people to obey God's rules without actually loving the Lord. So our task is to proclaim God's character before his commands. And as we get to know who God is and what he's like, we begin walking in such a way that we please God. So what the Bible calls holiness. It leads to a closer walk with the Lord, which in turn leads to greater knowledge of the, of the Lord. There's kind of a cycle here, right? It, it begins to be like a snowball pushed down a hill. As we know God more, we want to please him more. We want to walk more closely with him, which leads us to knowing him more, which leads us to pleasing him more. And that's sanctification. That's the Christian life. Walking with God day by day, getting to know him, seeking to please him over and over and over again until he returns. Notice one more thing before we move on to our next point, though. Paul doesn't just say, I want you to have some knowledge of God and his will. He says that you may be filled with it. He implies that there's degrees to which we can know and understand God. And he says, I want it to the max for you, church. I don't want you to just have just a little bit of understanding of God. I want the absolute maximum that you can have. Many Christians I've found are satisfied to know just enough about Jesus to get their get-out-of-hell-free card. And they kind of leave Jesus aside after that. All the while, the Lord is saying to us, no, there's more. There's more of me available. There's more I want to teach you. You can know me on a deeper level. You can know more about me, my plans, my purposes, my character. 
But even in the church, there's often very little appetite for those deep things of the Lord. My daughter, my youngest daughter's birthday was yesterday. She turned three, very cute. We had presents at, at the house for her, um, and I appreciate uh, her grandparents uh, for making there be lots of presents for her. Um, and so she was, she's opening presents, and, and in her three-year-old brain, she kind of gets through them, tears it, looks at it. Uh, one of them, she told us immediately she was disappointed in it because it wasn't Minnie Mouse. And so <laughs> we apologized and moved on to the next one. She opens the, the next one, which was, thankfully, a Minnie Mouse uh, gift, some kind of dress-up set. And it was it's this huge box with all of these aspects, all of these toys and all this stuff. And she just kind of looks at it, casts it aside, and goes and grabs the next present to tear into it, right? And if you've been around kids at Christmas, you've seen this play out over and over and over again, Right? They, they kind of take what they got, they get their gift, and they kind of discard it and go looking for the next shiny thing that may come their way. And my, my fear is that a lot of us as Christians have done that with the Lord. We've gotten the gift of salvation. We've gone, oh man, this is great. I like this. Great. What else is there in this life? And we move on beyond it. And we never probe the depths of all that God offers us in his person. Christians have been saying for years that God wants a personal relationship with you. You've probably heard some preacher say that in your, in your lifetime. That's not just some clever phrase that we use. That's a huge deal. You and I can walk with God. We can know God. We can commune with him. We, he can speak to us through his word. We can speak back to him through prayer. We can have a relationship with God. And I worry, because there's so much shiny stuff in the world around us, that many of us don't press into that relationship that he offers us and get to know him to the max and we're not full of the knowledge of the will of God. But it's available to us if we'll go seek it out. Have you ever met someone that is full of the knowledge of God? Someone who has a deep and vibrant walk with God? You know the kind of people I'm talking about? You can just tell they've been with Jesus when you, when you talk to them. The, the, the words of Scripture kind of just flow out of their mouth. They have a deep sense of joy and peace about them. There's a steadiness to them. You guys know who I'm talking about, those type of people? Paul's saying, I want that for every one of you. The entire church can and should be that, this person who knows God deeply and loves him and walks with him. And he says this inner strength, this inner peace, this inner joy, it comes from knowing God. And that gets us to point two. God, Paul prays for strength for the church. Verse 11, being strengthened with all power, he says, according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. He prays for the church to be strengthened. There are difficult days ahead for this church at Colossae, right? We put ourselves back in first century Roman Empire and Turkey where we talked about last week this church is at. And this, these people at this church have walked away from Roman idol worship and emperor worship, kind of the state religion of that time, and they've instead turned to Jesus. That's going to come with a cost. Turning away from the religion of the world around you and instead pursuing something otherworldly like Jesus comes at a cost. This is true for them in first century Turkey. It's true for us in 21st century the United States. And whenever you put your faith in Jesus, it comes with a cost. That's why Jesus told the disciples to count the cost before they made the decision to follow him. He says in Luke 14, he says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him. And so Paul says to this church in Colossae, hey, I'm, I'm praying for strength for you. 
Because the decision you've made to follow the Lord, it's going to cost you something. I'm praying that you have what it takes to endure. And even just beyond the difficulty that comes from following Jesus, there's just the difficulty of life, right? Like, life is hard. Can I get an amen for that? The stuff of life, it beats us up. It's difficult. It's challenging. It wears us out. Jesus said in the book of Matthew that the rain falls on the just and the unjust. I mean, the difficulty is coming for everyone. In the Florida translation of the Bible, the rain falls on the just and the unjust every afternoon between 2 and 4 during the summer. No matter what time it's coming, amen, that's right. No matter what time it's coming, the rain is coming. Life is coming. Storms are coming for each of us. It's been said that you're either heading into a storm, in one right now, or just coming out of one. It's not the most encouraging fact in the world, but it's true. Life is hard. Life is difficult. Life can wear you out. And so Paul says, I'm praying for strength. Praying for you to have this kind of strength that leads to endurance and patience. Strength that comes from God with endurance and patience. What does that mean? Endurance is the ability to keep going when you want to quit. And patience is the ability to wait when you're tired of waiting. I don't know about you, but I've been in places in my life, in my walk with the Lord, where I've been tired of enduring and tired of waiting, and I've wanted to quit. And I think if we're all honest, we've all probably been in a similar place too, haven't we? Maybe you've been catching heat at work because you won't cut corners like your peers, and you're tired of being the outsider, and so you just want to kind of just give in. I'm not going to endure this anymore. I'm just going to give in and just be who they want me to be and do the wrong thing. I just, I give up. The Bible says keep going. Maybe you've been battling a besetting sin in your life, something that you can't seem to shake, and you're tired of fighting, and so the temptation is just to give yourself over to it and just give up. The Bible says keep fighting, endure. Perhaps you're in a difficult marriage, and your spouse refuses to treat you with the kindness and love that you hope for, and despite your best attempts to do the same for them, you want to bail, you want to give up, and you want to walk away from it all. The Bible says keep going. Paul says, I'm praying for endurance for you, for patience for you to keep going in the midst of this storm. Why would we do that? Why would we keep going? Because there's a reward at the end of it. In his letter to Galatians at the end, chapter 6, verse 9, Paul says, let us not grow weary while doing good. Why? For in due season, he says, we will reap if we do not lose heart. Keep going. You notice that Paul doesn't try to pretend like this is going to be easy. He doesn't sugarcoat this. He doesn't say life's, life's a fairy tale. Life's awesome. You'll hear some, some preachers say this. If you'll, if you'll turn to Jesus, he'll wipe away all your problems. That couldn't be further from the truth. Jesus says, if you follow me, you're going to have even more trouble. Count the cost. Be prepared. He doesn't sugarcoat this. He doesn't make this easy. The whole idea of enduring and waiting is that it's going to be tough. But the idea also includes this idea that there's a reward at the end of it, and it's going to be worth it. When I was in high school, I played football, which I know comes as a shock to many of you guys. You thought I was a track star. <laughs> in my high school, three-time state champions, if anyone was curious, uh, tryouts start uh, right around this time of year, maybe July, end of July, beginning of August. Tryouts for the football team begin. And I remember going out for football in high school as a ninth grader and, and, and uh, just kind of getting the schedule, right? And so you have two-a-days if you play football. They have two practices a day, which is just torture in Florida and full pads in the heat, four or five hours of football practice. This is insane. So you have two-a-days for a couple of weeks, and then you have kind of fall camp, they call it, leading up to the season. Then school starts and the season begins, and that's it. 
And I remember getting close to the, the school beginning and me wondering, like, when are they going to post the list? When are they going to post who got cut and who made the team? Who's in and who's out? And I'd watched enough movies to know that's how they do it. They post it on the locker room and everyone goes and they find their list. And so I remember asking an upperclassman, I said, hey, when do they post the cut list? Who made it in and who made it out? And he said, there's no cut list. He said, if you survive, you're on the team. <laughs> that was our coach's policy. He's like, if you can make it through all of this, we'll take you. There's a reward at the end. If you can endure this, if you can endure the summer heat in Florida in full pads, and you can do two practices a day getting beat on and pounded on, if you can make it through all of that, you're on the team. And in many ways, I think many of us just need to be reminded that the battle is not to score touchdowns or to win, make the winning pass. The battle is just to put on the pads and get out there and play another day. There's people in this room who are walking through hardship and difficulty and pain. And God, I believe through his word, wants to say to you today, keep going. Don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. Keep going. You will reap if you do not lose heart. And here's the key. The power to do that, the strength to do that, the strength to keep going, to keep putting one foot in front of the other, it comes from what we were talking about back in verses 9 and 10, walking closely with the Lord. It's so much easier to do, endure hardship when you've got someone to go through it with, isn't it? When you've got someone standing beside you saying, I'm right here with you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push through this with you. I'm going to go with you. It's so much easier to wait on the Lord to move when you've got someone sitting right beside you saying, I'm going to sit here right with you and wait. This stuff gets hard when we go it alone. God's saying, you don't have to go it alone. I'm going with you. Would you cling to me? Would you hold on to me? Would you pursue me? And so the call for you and for me today is whatever we're going through that requires strength and endurance and patience, our task is to find that in the Lord. Run to him, cling to him, cry out to him. Grab someone else and pray to him if you have to. Whatever you've got to do to pursue the Lord, to know him more deeply, to cling on to him more tightly in your season of difficulty, do that. The Lord promises he won't leave us or forsake us. He will be with us if we just keep going. The real kicker for this, though, guys, this is when it gets really cool for us as believers, is that the Bible says we can do all of this with joy. Can you believe that? We can do all of this with joy. We can have a smile on our face, a deep, abiding sense of joy in our hearts as we walk through some of the most difficult things in our lives. How is that possible? How is that possible? Because what typically happens when someone goes through difficulty or pain or heartache is they come out the other side calloused and bitter, right? Have you met people like that who just, life has been hard to them, and they came out the other side of it hard themselves, right? That's the natural course of things. But Paul's saying, hey, you can do this with joy. Why? Because the battle has already been won. Isn't there a quiet confidence that comes from knowing you're going to win? I mentioned earlier I like football, and I promise I won't only do football illustrations, but I will do a lot of them. (laughs) I watch old football games on TV, like when they come on, or I'll watch YouTube videos of, of old games that I know the outcome of. And it's so much more fun to watch when you know you win, isn't it? The Christian life is a whole lot like that. We know the final score. We know we're going to win. We know it works out in our favor. And so whatever we're going through right now, we can make it with joy because we know we win in the end. That's the promise that God has for us in Christ. And so that's why Paul concludes this little section, this little prayer with a prayer of thanksgiving. 
He says in verse 12, he says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul says, through all of this, I'm thanking God, church at Colossae, church at Fort Caroline Baptist Church. I'm thanking God because of what he's done for you. And look at this list that he lists off of all that God has done. First, he says, I'm thanking God that he qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. From the earliest days of God's story in the scriptures, there has been promised to the people of God an inheritance. If you're a Bible student, you've heard of Abraham, and you've heard of Isaac, and you've heard of Jacob, and all of these people were promised by God an inheritance, a land flowing with milk and honey, which is meant to symbolize abundance and provision and joy and happiness. And God says, hey, Abraham, I want you to go there, and I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to make you a great nation with people so many that you can't count, and I'm going to put, your, your people are going to dwell there forever. And God renews that promise to Abraham's son Isaac, and then he renews that promise to Isaac's son Jacob. And what Paul is telling this church at Colossae, who are not Jewish, these are Gentile believers, he's saying that same promise is yours. This inheritance, this eternity with God in his kingdom is for you. It's a promise for you. You are guaranteed this promised land as a Christian. We receive this righteousness in place of our sinfulness, and that makes us eligible to enter into this heavenly promised land and to walk with God forever. We are qualified to be in, to be in God's family, to be in God's kingdom. And let me tell you, without Jesus, we are not qualified, church, are we? I don't know about you. I think there's probably some perfect people out here. But on this stage, there are no perfect people. There are nothing but sinners, people who have fallen so far short of God's standard. There's no way I'd get into heaven without Jesus. But Jesus looks at me and he looks at you now and he says, you're qualified, come on in. Not on the basis of what I've done, but on the basis of what Jesus has done for me and for you. Paul goes on, he says, you were delivered. He says, you were delivered from the domain of darkness. Just like the people of Israel, again, a lot of kind of Old Testament allusions here that Paul's doing on purpose. Just like the people of Israel, they were enslaved by the people of Egypt. They were, they, were, they were shackled, and they were tied daily to the task of, of building uh, the, the, these pyramids, I presume, and building other stuff, building bricks, it says in Scripture. And they were miserable. They had uh, evil uh, slave masters who drove them hard, and, and Pharaoh who was wicked to them. And you guys know the story. What happens? Mo- God sends Moses, God sends a Savior to lead them out of bondage and into the promised land. Paul says the same thing has happened for you and for me. We have been delivered from the bondage of Satan, sin, and death. No longer are we bound to our sinful state, but we are set free. Helpless to save ourselves from these things, the Lord has done it for us in his kindness. Then he says we've been transferred out of this domain into the kingdom of his beloved son. He didn't just rescue us from Satan's domain, but he moved us to the kingdom of God. We can define the kingdom of God as life with God under the rule and reign of God. And I think it's so fascinating that Paul doesn't say that this life in God's kingdom is some future thing that we hope to grasp in the future. What does he say? Look closely. Verse 13, he says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. It's past tense. It's already done. 
As you and I sit here today, if you're a believer in Jesus, we belong to the kingdom of God right now. Certainly there's more to come for us, for sure. No question. But right now we belong to God's kingdom. How did we get there? He says we were redeemed. We have redemption, verse 14 says, the forgiveness of sins. Paul says, I'm thankful that you've been redeemed through the forgiveness of sins. Church, you and I owed a debt that we could not pay. Jesus said, I will pay the price for you. He goes to the cross, dies in our place, a death that you and I should have died, a payment that you and I should have paid, but we could not afford. Jesus does it for us. The Bible says that if we put our faith in Jesus' death on that cross, our sins are forgiven and we are washed whiter than snow. I don't have any better news to tell you than that, church. We are free because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Church, that should blow us away as we consider this fact. We'll spend eternity with the Lord. When we consider all that we have in Jesus, all that God has done for us, all that God has given us, all that God has promised us, all that God gives us even now in this very moment, it should blow us away and it should drive us to do what? To want to know the Lord even more. To want to walk with him even more. It becomes a big cycle. Can you see how Paul's argument here is, hey, as we know the Lord, we want to please the Lord, and pleasing the Lord leads to knowing the Lord, which bears fruit in our lives, fruit such as spiritual strength and endurance and patience. And when we do that, we want to know the Lord even more. And it grows and it grows and it grows. And this is God's call to us, to you and to I, to do for the rest of our lives until he returns or he calls us home. That's our task. This passage I said at the beginning is a big run-on sentence. It's a chain of things that we should pursue. We should pursue knowing God's will. We should pursue living in a way that pleases him. We should pursue bearing fruit in our lives. We should pursue knowing God more. We should pursue being strong in the Lord, having endurance, having patience, having joy, giving thanks. All of this stuff God is asking of you and I today. It's a big task. It's like a big row of dominoes. And if you push the first one over, you'll get the rest of them. It all works together. So what's the first domino? Church is this. Let's open your Bible. God wants to walk with you. He wants you to know him. And in his kindness to us, he has revealed himself to us in this book. God wants you to know him, and he's made himself available to you. And all he's asking is that you press into that. And so I want to encourage you. One small application step. This is not a big step. I don't need you to do all of this stuff that Paul commands here yet. What I'm asking you to do is open your Bible this week. Make spending time with God a priority in your life. Pick a book of the Bible, pick Mark, pick John, pick Colossians, good choice. Pick something and spend a little bit of time in it. If you're new to reading your Bible, if you're new to spending time with God, you can use the 555 method. It's super easy to remember, super short. It won't take a ton of time. But you spend five minutes reading your Bible. Set a timer on your phone, five minutes, set it aside, and just read for five minutes and stop. Once the timer goes off, you start it again, five more minutes, and say, I'm going to meditate for five minutes, or I'm going to think about what I read for five minutes. You can kind of go back over what you read, think about what stuck out to you, write down questions you have maybe, whatever. Just think about what you read for five minutes. Timer goes off, five more minutes. Spend those five minutes in prayer. Thank the Lord for what you learned about him in his word. Thank him for all that he's done for you. Ask for strength for your day. Ask for endurance and patience for your day. And when the timer goes off, say amen and go about your day. I'm willing to bet that it will change how you see the world. It will change how you approach your life, your job, your family, everything. If you'll commit to just walking with the Lord just a little bit more each and every day. 
Church, we serve an incredible God who loves us, who died on the cross for our sins so that he could have a relationship with us, so that we could know him, so that we could walk with him. Far be it from us that we push that aside and ignore him. We don't do these things. We don't walk with the Lord. We don't read his word. We don't pray so we can earn God's love. We do it because of what he's already done for us, because of what verses 12, 13, and 14 say he already transpired. Out of love for him, let's walk with him, church. Amen? I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to move into a time of response as we take the Lord's Supper together. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you that it's true. I thank you that we can build our lives upon it. And God, I pray that you would make what we have talked about here this morning true in my heart and in the hearts of everyone here. Lord, we want to know you, and we thank you that you've made yourself knowable. I pray that you would help us to pursue you this week as we go about the life that you've called us to live. And in so doing, we'll bear fruit in our lives. We'll walk in a manner worthy of what you've called us to. We'll find the strength that you provide to endure and to be patient. And God, we'll be grateful for all that you've done for us in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God's word is meant to be responded to, and so as you came in, you should have been handed a, um, a packet of the communion elements. If you didn't, lift your hand. Matt can pass one out to you. Got some up front, a couple over here. There's two different models of communion elements. So some of you have the wafer on the top, some of you have it on the bottom, but either way, get your wafer ready while we're passing it out. The Bible teaches us that there are three purposes in taking the Lord's Supper. The first purpose of the Lord's Supper is to help us to look backwards. We're to be reminded of what we just talked about, what Jesus did for us on the cross, his body being broken. The bread is to symbolize Jesus' broken body for us. And the blood, the, the juice is to symbolize Jesus' blood poured out, the Bible says, that covers our sins. And so when we take the Lord's Supper together, we look backwards at that event and we remember and we're thankful. The Bible also teaches us that the Lord's Supper is an opportunity to look inwards. It's an opportunity to look inside at our hearts and to examine our hearts before the Lord and see if there's any unconfessed sin or unrepented of sin that we need to address. The Bible also says that we should make right any issues that we have with our brothers and sisters in Christ before we take the Lord's Supper. So you can use this moment now to examine your own heart, confess any sin to the Lord, ask for forgiveness, and be assured on the basis of God's word that you will receive that forgiveness. Lastly, the Lord's Supper is meant to help us to look forward. When Jesus instituted this meal, he told his disciples, he said, I'm not going to have this meal again until I have it anew with you again in my Father's kingdom. And so he causes us to look forward to that day when Jesus returns, makes all things right, and we sit at the marriage supper of the Lamb with the Lord and feast in that promised land that Paul was talking about today. And so we'll take these elements together as a church. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Bible goes on to say, in the same way, Jesus also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.
Jesus went on to say, as often as you drink this bread or eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Church, we worship a God who loves us so much that he sent his one and only son to die on the cross for our sins so that we could have eternal life with him. And that son is coming back to make all things right in the world, to establish his kingdom once and for all. So until he does, let's go from this place, seeking to know this great God who loves us and eager to make him known to a world that needs him desperately. We love you, church. We'll see you back here next Sunday.